Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it's entertainer, speaker, and author Nicole Johnson, who offers some insight consistent with scripture about managing a very busy or crazy life. Then some words of hope from Proverbs 31 speaker and writer Tracy Miles, who provides encouragement for those times when life's circumstances seem to be sinking. Also from CBA Unite 2017 in Cincinnati, Audra Haney and Carissa Kolar offering some sound principles based on the Bible that is intended to be helpful for new parents. And on this edition of The Intersection, from Oasis International, it's Matthew Elliott, who has overseen a project that has been developed by African church leaders for Africans, providing a perspective that relates to those on the continent and to those who want to know more about ministry there. Then another CBA Unite interview with author Marilyn Turk, the organizer of the Blue Lake Christian Writers Retreat in South Alabama, whose interest in lighthouses and her desire to write for the Lord resulted in a series of blog posts and a book dealing with how people can be inspired by this powerful symbol. Finally, John Zmirak of The Stream, bringing some information gathered from a recent interview with David Delighton of the Center for Medical Progress, who has been involved in exposing Planned Parenthood with undercover videos. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Nicole Johnson is an entertainer and speaker. She's been involved in the past with the Women of Faith Conferences and has founded the Seasons Weekend Conferences. She's written a book called Creating Calm in the Center of Crazy, Making Room for Your Soul in an Overcrowded Life. With some biblically infused insight into managing life, especially when things get really busy, this is Nicole Johnson. I think, Bob, we can only balance things that are equal. And, you know, a kettlebell and a cheerio don't really balance out. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of shame when our lives don't, you know, sort of work out in nice pie shapes like a compartmentalized Hello Kitty plate. I mean, if balance is like not falling over, okay, then that's great. But otherwise, I, I don't think it all comes out even at the end of the day. I think we spend a lot of time just leaning in certain seasons of our lives trying to trying to make it uh work out well it does seem like that that pie chart that you referred to is something that changes not only every day but probably changes every hour because we can have our best laid plans at the beginning of the day by the time the day's over things are are quite different so if balance is not the solution then what do you think are are some of the the components of of really being able to to manage if i can use that word a life that can well sometimes get rather crazy sure well you know i think this isn't a book about about learning to smell the roses it or stopping you know it's a book about keeping the roses from being mowed down by a runaway tractor it's, <laughs> life is so crazy in this culture that if we don't intentionally try to stop it and create a center of calm in the midst of it, then we're just living out the crazy day in, day out, with no opportunity for reflection or contemplation. So when we look at the the schedule and the way that that real culture in general drives our schedule, there's this crazy, busy mindset that has taken over. Right. Obviously, calm is something that you deal with here in the book. What would you say would be maybe some indicators that that a woman, especially, 
might need to to create some calm, and how is that done? <laughs> well, for me, it was just a constant sense of, you know, I'm overcommitted, and I'm feeling a lot of pressure, and I don't feel like I'm keeping up, and I'm working harder than ever, and those were some of the feelings I was having, and realizing that many of those feelings were coming from inside me, that I had spent much more time trying to control the crazy, like finding another calendar program or a better app or reading real simple, which didn't make my life any more simple. Um, And instead, it really became about learning to stop and wait for a sense of hearing God, a sense of creating a, a calm a calm center. It took a crisis for that to happen for me, but once it happened, I didn't want to waste it. I wanted that crisis. Once I was still, I wanted to, um, I wanted to use it because it's very difficult for women to stop, Bob. I don't know if you know that. We have to take care of everybody around us, and so oftentimes we, we put ourselves last. And while all that is sacrificial and wonderful, um, it, it takes its toll. Heart attacks are the number one killer of women, not because women have more heart attacks than men, but because ours are fatal. And ours are fatal because we ignore our symptoms. And we ignore our symptoms because we think we can't stop and we don't have time to go to the doctor and get things checked out. So it's really important for us in our culture to take the reins of our life and be able to slow it down while we still have something worth slowing down for. Nicole Johnson here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website NicoleJohnson.org. The Intersection continues now with Proverbs 31 author and speaker Tracy Miles. In a recent conversation, she discussed some principles that she relates in her book, Unsinkable Faith, God-Filled Strategies to Transform the Way You Think, Feel, and Live. Here now is Tracy Miles. Well, the book really was birthed out of, uh, you know, a lot of experiences, but one in particular, which was when I got abruptly separated from my husband after 25 years of marriage. And it was during that time that I was called to write this book, and it took an entirely different direction than I had originally planned. And the conversation that I had with God was after just months and months of just heartbreak and devastation and all the emotions and fears that come with, you know, difficult circumstances, I just kind of had a a breakdown, a, a turning point. And I just broke down in tears and cried and talked to God for several hours. And I heard a whisper to my heart that said, but will you still love me? And I knew that was from from Jesus. And that kind of became a turning point for me because I realized that I do still love the Lord despite the circumstances that He's allowed in my life and that I'm dealing with. And it has been a difficult journey, but also an amazing journey of faith to see how God has you know, been so faithful during this entire time. Well, again, the book is called Unsinkable Faith. Obviously, that was a time in your own life where you felt like you were sinking. And people, when they encounter difficult times in their lives, they might feel as if they're sinking or or drowning, and they become consumed with all sorts of, of negative thoughts. When when someone or if someone may be listening today is in that particular situation— 
what generally are some ways that that listeners can really begin to to trust in the Lord, even when you know they feel like they may be sinking or drowning? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I like to point out is that it doesn't matter how strong a Christian that we feel that we are, or how long we've been, you know you know, believed in our faith and believed in God, when something really, really hard happens in life, it shakes us and it shakes, it can shake our faith. And it does cause us sometimes to feel like we're sinking spiritually, emotionally, physically, even mentally. And that's kind of where I found myself. So, you know, there are several tips that I give in the book for really beginning to transform our thoughts, which is what I knew that I had to do personally because my thoughts kept driving me into this sinking pit. Even, you know, I'll, we often think of worst case scenarios or negative things that could happen rather than trying to focus on the positive because that's just human nature. So really intentionally choosing to try to invite God to, you know, change us from the inside out is where we all have to start. Well, I wanted to zero in on this whole concept of negative thoughts. We hear that the mind is the battleground. The Bible instructs us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When negativity enters in and it becomes a stronghold. How do you see that that takes place and what are the consequences of it? Well, our thoughts control our lives more than we realize. And the way we think is going to control how we feel and how we feel is going to dictate how we act and react to situations. So our thoughts have such power. And, you know, we've, there's been a secular term for so many years, just the power of positive thinking, but it's not just a term or a phrase or a suggestion that's good for us. And one of the key verses in scripture that this book is based on is Romans 12 two, which says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And that verse really took on a whole new meaning for me. Um, when I began writing Unsinkable Faith and when I was walking through this difficult journey in, in the end of my marriage, because I had to, I couldn't change my circumstances. I couldn't change situations or other people, but I could change the way that I was thinking and my perception of the things that were happening. And that's really the pivotal point that we all have to come to is realizing that I can't change this maybe that's happening around me, but I can change me. I do have control over my own mind. Tracy Miles here on The Intersection. Learn more at the website Tracy, that's T-R-A-C-I-E, miles.com. The Intersection continues now with conversation from the 2017 CBA Unite event in Cincinnati. Two of the three co-authors for Your Newborn Promise Project, Audra Haney and Carissa Kolar, discuss some of the biblically-based principles they relate in their material. There's also a study guide available, plus there are board books for children that are part of the overall project. With some material oriented toward new parents, here now are Audra Haney and Carissa Kolar. I came on with Graham Blanchard about two years ago, and Callie Grant, the founder and CEO of our company, had really felt burdened for this demographic that was kind of getting lost. We had all this premarital, um, all these resources and, and great um, you know, books for counseling and just a lot of resources to tap into. And then as kids got into preschool programs and that sort of thing, there were a lot of resources. But what we were finding is there was a huge gap 
for that major life transition from going from a married couple to parents. And so Callie had been burdened about that for several years and decided to start. Um, She had a line of incredible board books out, but really wanted to get on the front end of that and start that discipleship um, from the very beginning from pregnancy and really be intentional as parents move through that transition. Mm. Well, Carissa, as we talk about the content of this this book called Your Newborn Promise Project. What are some of the things that you and the, the writing and editing team really thought were important elements to include in the project? Yeah, so we identified five areas that we feel are in the scriptures over and over again. There's love, remember, seek, question and persevere and we feel like those were themes that you see throughout scripture so we use those as sort of the backbone of our discussion Um, as parents move through each of those different faculties we try to bring spiritual principles in that will help strengthen their marriage and increase their ability to have a good family life and vision spiritually for how to come together and how to shepherd their children in their walk with the Lord. Mm. And so those five different elements are love, remember, seek, question, and persevere. These are also entities that you're trying to help with the uh, the children to develop in their own lives, correct? Yeah, there was a lot of crossover. Like I said, we had this pre-existing board book collection and we started to realize that the same biblical principles that we were emphasizing to parents were so present in our board books. So we thought this conversation can keep going. We can re-emphasize those in the child's life. And, um, you know, we found that God is just so detailed in the way spiritual life is so simple, but yet it's ongoing and excuse me, it's ongoing and it's consistent. And so um, we were just really struck with how well everything was integrated already with these principles and with the board books. So what the parents are learning, the children are going to learn as well. Well, let's talk about this whole concept of love and this, of course, from a Christian worldview perspective. Why is it important for parents really to be built up in that principle as they prepare to welcome a new life to their home? So one of the things that we bring out in love is our identity. And we would say that love is not so much of a physical bond as a spiritual bond, that we are truly spiritual beings first. And so our, our bond with our family, our marriage, and our children is a spiritual bond. And if we look at it from that perspective, it really makes the case for why we need to stay grounded in the word and look to God's word. What does he say about love? The one who created us with this ability to bond in this regard. Carissa Kolar and Audra Haney joining me at the CBA United event in Cincinnati. You can learn more about the project by going to grahamblanchard.com and then go to the Newborn Promise Project section of the website. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link marked Meeting House On Demand. That's a link to the Download Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. 
Also, you can get connected to video content, including content from the CBA Unite event in Cincinnati. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Recently, Matthew Elliott spoke with me. He serves as president of Oasis International. He served as project director for the Africa Study Bible. In our conversation, he discussed the concept of the Bible, the notes of which were composed by Africans for Africans. Here now is Matthew Elliott. Well, one of the things that uh, the project we're talking about today, the Africa Study Bible, really concentrates on is the fact that so much of the written literature that's respected, that uh, informs the life of the Church, um, that does discipleship, is from churches in America, leaders in America, two, three, four thousand miles away. And so that's just not the kind of material uh, that informs their own cultural context, their own society, uh, and the own issue, their own issues that's facing the church in this generation among their own people. And so what we're trying to do with Oasis is try to um, empower and encourage Africans to write the books and uh, create the discipleship material that their own churches and their own people need to grow in Christ. Well, we're going to be talking about that process of putting this study Bible together, but I wanted you to, at this point, give an overview about the the Africa Study Bible. What is it like? What are some of the components of it? Well, uh, actually, it was planned in Accra, Ghana in 2011 by a group of African leaders and theologians from French, from English, Portuguese, uh, even Arabic-speaking North Africa, who came together and tried to say, what is, are the greatest needs of our churches in Africa? And they really spoke with the pastor's heart. And so they designed a project uh, that would be all about authentic discipleship in the African context. And so, for example, we have about 600 African stories and proverbs that illustrate the scriptures uh, through their own wisdom and their own cultural context, the, the things that they've heard from their elders and grandmothers and grandfathers over the generations. Um, and another area, of course, is understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So there's a about 80 what we call learn notes, which are basically what every Christian should know. Uh, Baptism, who is Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, those kinds of things. And so it goes on from there. So altogether we have over 2,400 features that really talk about what it means to be a Christian in the African context. Talk about the whole process of compiling the information or the content of the Africa Study Bible. Well, actually, uh, we believe it's the most ethnically diverse single-volume resource ever created uh, for the Bible, for uh, a single-volume biblical resource. There's 350 authors from across 50 countries who've written Uh, originally notes in five languages that were then translated into English and edited in English. So the process was extensive. Um, One of the things that we had to do is we had a whole Internet system 
where leaders and scholars from across the continent could review content online all at once so that uh, this diverse continent from all across the continent could be reviewed and commented on and make sure that um, the theology, the understanding, uh, the context of the scripture was all accurately portrayed in the feature and the note for the Bible. Matthew Elliott here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website africastudybible.com. Well, joining me at CBA Unite 2017 was author Marilyn Turk. She is the organizer of the Blue Lake Christian Writers Retreat in South Alabama. Her interest in lighthouses and her desire to write for the Lord resulted in a series of blog posts and a book dealing with how people can be inspired by this symbol. Here now from that conversation is... Marilyn Turk. It just spoke to me. There was so, there was over 300 mes, uh, mentions of lights in the Bible, and I researched historical stories for this. They were all real things that happened. But I would write this, and I'd be looking for the the biblical point. How did that relate to scripture? But uh, verses would just come to my head as I would be writing these stories. And at first, I wasn't sure I wanted to put the verse in there. And then I felt like God said, well, why do you think I'm giving you these verses? So I said, oh, okay, then I'll put the verse in there. <laughs> so I, I wrote the story, and then I put the verse that it reply, you know, applied to. And uh, you know, God's word is light, God is light. Um, light shows the way it light you know shows us dangers light leads there's just so many comparisons of lighthouses to God's word and God Mm. well let's talk about another book you just mentioned that this is something that was recognized by the the AWSA which the Advanced Writers and Speakers Association the Golden Scroll Award that was for a book called The Gilded Curse Yes. Tell me just a bit about that. Well, that book, actually, I wrote just to see if I could write a suspense novel because I had started out to write a series of lighthouse novels. And my editor said that someone was looking for a Southern Gothic book. And I thought, I didn't know what that was, but I'd see if I could find <laughs> out. And uh, it's kind of like um, Jane Eyre or... Um, Pride and Prejudice, some of that stuff are actually more dark than that um, that's said in the South. You think of um, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, something like that. So we happen to be visiting around the St. Simon's Jekyll Island area for vacation, and I knew about the Millionaire's Village over on Jekyll Island. I used to live in Georgia, so I wanted to go see it again because they've been renovating it. And I'm just fascinated by that whole village because it was built by a group of millionaires. It was their resort. It was their club. And these houses were their summer cottages. And they were only there about three months of the year. So when we were over there and I started looking at these old houses, I thought, I wonder if we could set a story here. So we started, uh, my husband and I, we started brainstorming and, and I always look for a significant event that happened to put that happened in a setting that I could put my characters into. And it just happened 
for me that that was 1942. So it's the story of someone who comes back to the island 10 years after she had left. She was a child. Her mother believed the island was cursed because a lot of bad things had happened to her family when they were at the island. So this girl comes back to the island and um, someone is out to, to get her. And, and I can't divulge a whole lot of the story there, but there are external threats. There's also German U-boats patrolling the coast hmm. of our country at that time, show, shooting anything they could in the water, hopefully tankers. That was what they were looking for, but anything else. And so there were dangers, external dangers. And there were also dangers on the island. And then she had her own fears because her mother had these phobias. So it was a matter of what what fear is a real fear. And then she has, there's a Gothic chapel there. And if you've ever seen Gothic architecture, those, they call them grotesque if they're on the inside. They're those carved figures that mm-hmm. are real scary mm-hmm. looking. So when she was a little girl, she was in this chapel. It was scared her to see these things. And then after all the cursed part of the island she didn't want to set foot in that chapel but she had been away from God and so she was afraid of God too so she had to learn what the truth was. Marilyn Turk here on the intersection her website address is pathwayheart.com to learn more about the Blue Lake Christian Writers Retreat you can go to bluelakecwr.com Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's John Zmirak, Senior Editor of The Stream. In a recent conversation, he shared about information he gathered during his conversation with David Delighton of the Center for Medical Progress, responsible for those undercover videos exposing Planned Parenthood and its involvement with the buying and selling of body parts from aborted babies. Here now from that conversation is John Zmirak. Yeah, I was guest hosting for Eric Metaxas, an old friend of mine from Yale. Uh, we met, we knew each other a little bit at Yale, and then we met again in pro-life circles 15 years later after he had his conversion to Christ, which is a wonderful, wonderful way to have a reunion. Um, I got the privilege to talk to David Delighton, someone whose work I've admired for years. He uh, did undercover investigative work, uh, digging into what Planned Parenthood does as opposed to what they say they do, with the remains of unborn children whom they abort. Because, you know, they're the largest abortion business in the country. And uh, 80% of their revenues come from abortion. They're basically an abortion business with a little bit of of a, like a cancer screening and family planning band-aid covering the gaping wound of the fact that they're just an abortion an abortion industry. It's like uh, Playboy magazine runs into articles so people can pretend that's why they buy it, but everybody knows why you buy it. Mm. And and despite the efforts of Planned Parenthood to really cover that up, I mean, I've I've heard statistics coming out of the Planned Parenthood camp that only, well, 3% of their business is devoted to abortion. But yeah. this is the nation. Do you know, do you know how they yeah. manufacture that statistic? Please, Every yeah, time share they that give a woman us. a Band-Aid, they count that as a separate transaction. Yeah, that's a totally bogus statistic that they cook up very intentionally for PR purposes. When a woman comes in there to, uh, to, to get an abortion, they will do a screening. They count that as a transaction. They will give her some medical advice. They count that as a transaction. They sell her some birth control. They give her some medicine. Each of those things is a separate transaction, and they count them as equal, even though 
some of them generate zero income or virtually no income. Uh, so imagine if every time you went to McDonald's, they counted the french fries and the shake separately from the burger in order to make it seem like you had five transactions when in fact it was really mm. just one. That's, that's the trick they do, that they can cover up the fact that most of their money comes from abortions or the federal government paying them to do abortions. Mm. Well, you had this conversation with David Delighton of the Center for Medical Progress, and people are no doubt familiar with these undercover videos. Now, this is David, yes, is an investigative journalist, but he's not someone that is doing this for sensational purposes. This is someone that is doing this and really immersing himself in a highly repulsive industry, but he's doing it for a very very distinct purpose and talk about what you discovered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine being a, a spy in Nazi Germany working for the United States or even working for, for a Jewish refugee agency and you're trying to get Jews out of Germany, but you have to pretend to be a Nazi in order to, to infiltrate the Nazi operation. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it was like emotionally and spiritually for him to have to do that. So I asked him about it, and, and he said, you know, well, you have to have a very strong prayer life. And uh, he, he's a regular church attendant. He's a Catholic. He's got a priest who gives him advice. But he said what really sustained him was a sense of Christian love, not just for the unborn children or even the mothers, but even for the doctors and nurses who are committing these atrocious acts. And that, that really fascinated me and kind of inspired me. He, he said, you know, you have to realize these people are putting their souls in danger, and also, they're on the front line. The average pro-abortion politician, say, or minister who's decided he's pro-choice, they never confront the reality of abortion. They, don't, they can use euphemisms or Latinate words like fetus or product of conception, but these doctors and nurses, they're dealing with the little tiny heads and the skulls and the lungs and the little eyes that seemed to look back at them. I mean, he said that, you know, he could tell a lot of them were paying a terrible emotional price for that. And he actually felt a weird bond with them in the sense that, like him, they knew what abortion really is. They know it's the destruction of human beings. You can't, you can't really convince yourself of anything else when you're cataloging the little baby parts so that you can sell them to laboratories really staggering. Mm. John's Mirak here on The Intersection. You can get connected to the stream through thestream.org. Well, this has been The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link marked Meeting House On Demand. That's a link to the media center through which you can listen to and download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and you can get connected to two blogs. You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also video content accessible through the site. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.